Hi, this is Bron Burton, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Radio Marinara, a weekly radio show exploring all things wet and salty, broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and feel free to get in touch with us via Radio Marinara's Facebook page. For this week's edition of Radio Marinara, we are the program about all things wet and salty. My name's Bron Burton. My name's Dr. Beach. Good morning, Dr. Beach. How are you going, Bron? I'm pretty good. How are you? I'm very well. Nice to see your face. Good to see your face as well. Happy New Year, I need to say to you. It has been a while. Yeah. uh, December. It has been since December indeed. For each of us, our second show back. But um, yeah, I was on, kicked it off with Anth, and you're on last week. Here we are. Indeed. Here we are. Good to be back. Joined by Rachel behind the 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 cockpit. Flying the ship, Marinara. We're going to start by acknowledging we're broadcasting, um, as you will hear from a lot of Triple R broadcasters, uh, because we really do mean how uh, many, how our respects we like to pay to traditional owners of the lands on which, as I said, we're privileged to be broadcasting. Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, and um, respects to elders past and present and to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders who may be listening today. We have to thank Tim Thorpe first up and uh, very ably backed, supported. <laughs> but it, it, it. Edith? Not Edith. Edith. <laughs> Edith and, uh, and Peter. Edith Vinal, Peter Joseph Head. And I didn't write down the name of their outfit. Um, Exoskelet. Exoskelet. Ah, that yeah. would appeal to you, Dr. Beach. Well, yeah, presumably it's French for exoskeleton, isn't it? Yeah. Rachel's a... I don't call you a francophile, do I? Uh, francophone, peut-être. Oh, francophone, peut-être. <laughs> <laughs> exoskelet, yeah. Yeah, so I guess all about crabs, <laughs> crustacean, arthropods. Yeah. We should get them in here. That's right. Yeah. We'll, we'll line you guys up another time. Um, what are we doing this thank week? Thank you so much. On today's program, um, Rex is going to be joining us shortly, Rex Hunter, for his first segment. Um, if you're new to the program or maybe you've just stumbled across us, uh, Rex Hunter is our in-house maritime archaeologist and he's bringing a very special guest in today, Jeff Naylor. Jeff was part of a, a group of pioneer divers back in the 1970s and even before then he's been diving since the 50s, called the Geelong Skin Divers. Um, they were uh, underwater explorers, you know, sort of picture what Melbourne was like in the 70s. And, and, and the word skin diver is such yeah. a, an expression from the 60s and 70s. I, I immediately think of Lloyd Bridges. And yeah. Cousteau. And, and Jacques Cousteau. Yeah. Maybe. And so this year is the 50th anniversary since they discovered... Uh, a, a group of ships on the seabed just off Point Lonsdale, um, which became known as the ship's graveyard. And so being 50 years, we're not only looking back to that time of discovery, but we're very excited to have joining us Jeff Naylor, who was one of the original pioneer divers who discovered the ship's graveyard 50 years ago. Yes, yeah, very exciting to have um, have um, Jeff on the show with, um, yeah, with Rex. Along with, with Rex. Rex. Yeah. yeah. And after that, we're going to talk to... Um, Professor Katrina Hurd, who rejoices in the in the moniker of a professor of seaweed at the University of Tasmania and the Institute for Marine and Antarctic Studies down in Hobart. Katrina um, has done an enormous amount of work um, in seaweed biology. She's written a textbook on seaweed physiology and biochemistry and, um, and publishes widely, as I said. Um, we're going to talk to her about 
perhaps toning down the hype around using seaweeds to suck an enormous amount of carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere to have lots of seaweed farms and sink seaweeds to the ocean and you know as a way of potentially reducing how enormously damaging carbon dioxide that we've been spewing into the atmosphere but can seaweeds really do that and is it a, is it a viable solution and sure. is it is it being used as a convenient excuse oh yeah 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 so so called blue washing yes yeah, fascinating. Yeah, so uh, yeah, looking forward to having a um, yeah an in depth conversation with Katrina in about half an hour's time. Yeah, I'm I'm looking forward to that too. I feel like we're about to kind of just take an enormous leap ahead of where current thinking is at, and and actually look to the future if we continue with our the and, way and, and, things are going. Yeah, if people go ahead with those things and you know try and get money back from powers that be or whatever, so you have carbon credits and. It's, and it's wrong. It's not only dangerous to the environment, but it's sort of doubly dangerous, and it puts the people that are the skeptics in the in the beginning. Mm. Um, that makes them even more skeptical. Yeah, yeah. Excellent. Very good conversation to come up, and then to completely change tack. Oh uh, yeah, to, to, to go from the very serious <laughs> to the. Uh, to the wacky. <laughs> Jeff Maynard's coming in. We love it when Jeff Maynard comes in. He comes in about once a month. And he's, um, late last year, he announced he was going to be, he does a different series every year, different theme to the little segments he presents. Um, again, if you're new to the program, um, Jeff, Jeff's, apart from being a very well, uh, you know, worldwide recognised author in his own right as an historian with a particular interest in, you know, Antarctic exploration. Um, Jeff has this uh, penchant. We're, we're really getting into our little French words today. Yeah. <laughs> that's, about, that's all right. That's about as much as I know. Um, for uh, kind of B-grade, really bad quality underwater movies. Well, who doesn't? Yeah, I know. <laughs> But, but Jeff's, Jeff's the gun at that, um, he and he's bringing us in another one. Yes, he, well, his, his series this year is uh, the worst underwater movies ever made. And so for this week, he's called it the first of the worst, and um, his words he sent to me, in 2024, Jeff will be counting down the 10 worst underwater movies ever made. Get ready for giant claws, rubber fish suits, terrifying tentacles, and possibly a mechanical shark or two. <laughs> he never fails to disappoint. So thank you, Jeff. Really looking forward to uh, seeing you at the end of the program. Uh, okay, that's our program. Have you got some weather forecasting for us, Dr. Beach? Uh, yeah, well, weather forecasting. Yeah, I'm, I'm the big meteorologist here um, looking at my um, app. So for Brunswick East, which is where um, yeah, Wurundjeri country is, um, as Braun mentioned before, where we're broadcasting from today. Uh, it's going to be 25 degrees today. Um, we're going to get currently 7K winds and getting up to 17-kilometre gusts. Uh, zero rain today. Uh, so not a bad day, not too hot. And tomorrow it's going to be 24 degrees, no rain. Tuesday starting to warm up again, 31 degrees. Wednesday, 34. And um, Rachel and Bron, it's going to be a hot, steamy 37 degrees on Thursday. Oof. No rain for any of those days. Uh, we might get a little sprinkle on Friday when it bounces back down to 25 degrees. And then looking ahead to Saturday, it's going to be 23 degrees. If you are heading out on the water, you'll be wanting to know what's happening with the tides. And at Point Lonsdale, that is the heads of Port Phillip, uh, it's going to be a low tide at... Uh, well, no, it's going to be a high tide at... No, low tide just before 1pm this afternoon. So it was a low tide a couple of hours ago down there. 
Very good. Myra sent some um, footage through of a very, very flat-looking bay. Perfect dive conditions, so thanks for sending that through, Myra. Um, if you want to go diving, of course, uh, you can go to your local dive operator. It's probably the best thing at this point, but the weather's looking pretty outstanding. Um, Cliff has just sent through an Antarctic weather report this morning, well, from Davis Station anyway. Uh, it's looking pretty nice, actually. Eight knot, east to nor'easterlies. Uh, air temperature, minus 4.2. <laughs> <laughs> balmy with a wind chill down to minus 9.5 and uh, good travel conditions. And um, yes, his vessel is heading uh, down from Hobart, just left Hobart docks, heading down to Antarctica to bring Cliff home. So we'll be catching up with Cliff on the show at some point. Bring Cliff home. Bring, bring Cliff, Cliff home. home. Um, last thing I wanted to mention really quickly, did they didn't leave their name. Somebody sent through this message last week. We were talking about Port Phillip and called it Port Phillip Bay, as we do. And so the comment that came through said, without being pedantic, there's no such place as Port Phillip Bay. Correct. Just like there's no Port Davy Bay or Port Stephens Bay, it is the bays of Port Phillip, like Hobson Bay, Swan Bay, and Corio Bay as well. And um, um, it's Western Port. Yes, not Western Port Bay. Yeah. So that's going to take a very, like literally decades of undoing my brain. <laughs> When I, when I um, read out the tides, you may have noticed that I said um, the heads of our Port Phillip. Actually, I did not, Dr. Stuff. Peach. Mm. I'll go back you and You know me, I'm a bit of an old pedant as well. That's good. Nothing wrong with that. My favourite bit of news for the week, and this is the headline from um, ABC News, man uses inheritance to quit job and clean up plastic from Sydney Harbour beaches. <laughs> this 55-year-old bloke in Sydney, love to get him on the show. Andy Orr inherited a large sum of money two years ago, and he didn't dive into the life of luxury, as they say here, but rather he um, continued his hobby of getting out on the beaches, not only just a couple of hours a day as he used to when he was walking, when he was working, but now he can do it full-time and scour the, um, the shores of Sydney Harbour picking up rubbish. Good on you, how Andy. Much, oh, good on you, but how much fun would that be? I, I I enjoy doing that too. Every time I go down the beach, it's, you know, I, I cannot look at a bit of plastic and leave it there. No, I mean, same. Even walking through parks and all that kind of thing, but especially at the beach because we know what happens to it. In just a moment, we're going to be joined by Rex in the studio and Jeff Naylor on the phone um, talking about the discovery of Ship's Graveyard 50 years ago. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. To find out more about Triple R or to explore many more shows, podcasts, articles, videos and interviews, head to the Triple R website at rrr.org.au. You're listening to Radio Marinara here on 3 Triple R. Welcome, Rex. Hi, Bron. How are you? Yeah, good, thanks. How are you? Beach. I'm well. I'm, yeah, I'm really good. Good to no, see you. No complaints, yeah. Yeah. Upright and breathing, so all's good. That's good. Hey, we've got a very special guest waiting for us on the line. Would you like to introduce him? Well, yeah, yeah. We've got a, the amazing, iconic, incredible Jeff Naylor. So growing up in the 1960s and commencing diving in the, in the uh, 1970s, I brought and devoured editions of Skin Diving Australia, Barry Andrew Wathers, Skin Diving Australia. And in those magazines were lots of articles about, you know, diving exotic places, cans, and all over the world. But there was one particular author named Jeff who was right about these local shipwrecks that we had access to. So, you know, I really piqued my interest. Jeff was a great communicator, and he wrote numerous books, articles, and I could read all about it, and then I started visiting the sites. So Jeff and the, and the Geelong Skin Divers pioneered diving the ship's graveyard 50 years ago. And shortly, or two years after their first dive, they found the iconic uh, J-2 submarine and of the J-class subs that everyone loves to go out and dive. So just to explain some of that history and how it happened and 
why, where, with, when and how, uh, Jeff's going to answer a few questions. We're going to put the spotlight on Jeff. Sorry, Jeff. <laughs> Not really. So in, in, the first question, Jeff, I'm going to well, fire off here. I think we should maybe welcome him first. Oh, what do you reckon, Rex? <laughs> good morning, Jeff. Hello, good morning. How are you? Well, thanks. How are you? Good, thanks. Great. Look, thank you so much for joining us this morning. We're, we're kind of honoured to have you with us, really, being one of the pioneer divers of the graveyard. Well, uh, we sort of started all, I guess, uh, purely with the, uh, with the assistance of our uh, local cray fishermen. Without those fellas, who uh, knows how long it would have taken to, uh, to locate these things. Um, so Rex had a question for you. Do you want to jump in there, Rex? So um, let's go back to square one. Who, who were the skin divers? How did they get together? And how did you end up out in the ship's graveyard? Well, we, we formed the Geelong Skin Divers Club back in 1968. And uh, it sort of went from there. We had um, we had snorkel divers in the club and we had uh, scuba divers in the infancy of scuba diving in Geelong in those days. And uh, we got together and um, I got to do some work with uh, local fishermen with recovering foul cray pots for these guys. And uh, we were finding these soundies that they'd been getting rusty coloured greys off. And, uh, of course, it, it uh, sort of told us that there was something metallic down there and uh, that's what it was when we found the ship's graveyard. Wow. So the crays themselves were the clue because they were coming up and rusty, rusty covered? That's right. Crays normally fresh uh, are red, but these crays were coming up a very dark, rusty oh, colour. Amazing. <laughs> yeah. That's, it. And that, that's where it all started, actually. Were they coming up from different locations? I, I'm, I'm kind of trying to put what, what it would have been like. So you've got these cray pots out there with these crayfishes. They're going up there, they're pulling up their pots, and then there's a few crays that are coming up in the pots that were rusty-coloured. And then assuming there, there were also pots coming up nearby that whether they were the, the normal colour? Oh, yes. There's a completely different colour cray, yes. Yeah, so that gave you an idea of that there might be something down there. Did you have an idea oh. of, of what it might be at the time? We had no idea at all. There's lots of access to easy access to shipping records and historic records now, but what sort of records did you use to identify the site, Jeff? And how did, without GPS, how did you know you were actually over the site? Okay, when we uh, we found this this first work, I contacted the Department of Transport, and they sent me down a list. I think from them it was about 20, uh, 20 ships on this list that had been scuttled in the ship's graveyard, and they with every uh, ship there was. Um, a record of the latitude and longitude and the actual location of them. So uh, I used a sextant in those days for, for various things. And uh, But we put the, the latitude and longitude off this list that the Department of Transport had given me. We applied them to a chart and we found that the first three wrecks that we found landed within the area of what was called, or what was uh, noted on the chart as foul ground. The foul ground area is approximately three kilometres in diameter. It's, it's just south of Torquay. And as I said, it, it happened that the first three wrecks that we found landed within this foul ground. So the foul ground was noted as, as it was called the ship's graveyard. And that's how it started. So when you say foul ground, Jeff, is that because it was, was it just a dumping ground for all kinds of stuff? Yes, but in deep water, it wouldn't have been for mud or or rock or something that quite often the, the, the apartment dumped, you know, if they were dredging, they had a spot, a place we used to dump uh, offer like that. But uh, this was just marked as foul ground. And when we found these first three wrecks within that, uh, within that area, 
uh, there's about another 16 in there later on as other divers found them. What was that moment like when you saw them? Can you remember back then? Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, if you get something like that, we were all uh, pretty much divers trained within the club. None of us had ever really gone to a professional training because there were no schools, none in Geelong in those days. And uh, we just went down and, and uh, we saw the ship and we sort of, you know, we got help. But uh, it was exactly what what we sort of thought it might have been. It had to be something metallic and it was big. It certainly came up on the sounder as something large. And uh, we went down and there's this uh, ship sitting up right on the bottom. I was diving in the early 70s myself. And back then, we, all we had was like, like a single 72. You didn't even have to wear a, a dive vest, a Boise Compensator. And, you know, we had um, very, very basic equipment and, you know, like an Aquarius regulator, which is good to about 30 metres before it became really hard to breathe. So, what? It's what you call flying by the senior pants. So, <laughs> I know some of the pictures of you, you had, like, twin tanks and you know, decompression. What, what, how did you prepare for your dives? Well, for that dive, for, that, for those dives, the first three dives in that graveyard, we just used um, uh, single 72s. Yeah, in fact, I think, no, I'm wrong there. I think on the Malora and the Bivouac, I think we used, we had twin 72s on that. And we had twin 72s. They weren't coupled up by a yoke. They had independent regulators and contents gauges on them. And that gave us our own, if we had, a, if one of us had an accident with air, with an air problem, we had our own separate air, backup air supply with us, so we didn't have to rely on a on a buddy for buddy breathing, as we called it in those days. But we we started that stuff going, and uh, it was an expensive one, very heavy. But of course, divers use these with the tech diving these days. They have half a dozen tanks strapped on; they don't even think about it. But <laughs> <laughs> we never went down that track. We, it wasn't invented. Back then, I don't think anyway. Jeff, you mentioned a seventy-two. What's a seventy-two? It's a single seven. It's a seventy-two cubic foot tank. Okay. Um, and quite big. No, um, well, the normal hundreds are about twelve litres, so they must be about eight, maybe eight litres of air or something like that. Yeah. So, okay. Well, yeah, not not really certain in those terms, uh, but, but <laughs> I, know, I know they weigh about twenty-two kilos. I know that. And so you've you've gone down there. You've used a sextant. You've made your way down to the sea floor. Um, you're operating off, you know. Off the equipment that you have, uh, I'm assuming you might have taken dive tables with you or work, worked out how long you can spend down there because, I, I guess, how, how deep were you? Well, we made in the old terms, it was 160 feet. Oh. And we got, the, yeah, we got the depth and the length of the craypot lines. Uh, the old echo sounders in those days weren't all that really accurate, I think, but uh, <laughs> uh, we built them down 160 feet on those, on those small dives. And, yes, and we, we planned our dives for a 10-minute bottom time with a one-minute decompression at 10 feet on the way back. Wow. We're kind of looking at each other. Our jaws have all dropped, Jeff. We're, we're, so we're in, um, in metric terms, we're talking about 50 metres, roughly? Yeah, 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 yeah. 50 metres. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Wow, that is a long way down. Yeah. You're talking about a 16-storey building over your head in the water. Yeah, amazing. Can you describe what it, you said they were really big and you've gotten down there and, and what was it like? What did you actually see when you got down there? I think the first thing I remember seeing was the uh, the boiler, because all these all the ships had a boiler. And I guess when you think about it, 
uh, when all these wrecks have collapsed, uh, the boiler will be the last thing standing. So uh, we saw the boiler then, of course, I took some photographs of the, um, the bow, the forward section of these ships, uh, and some of us took photographs of, of our divers, uh, of our, our buddies on the swimming around the wreck, and um, we just uh, had these photographs developed, and we, I used to do my own developing in those days, but some were black and white, some were done in extra high speed ectochrome, and we just looked at all these photographs, and we, we just thought, you know, wow, uh, you know, how many more are there out there? And uh, then we started, and we started to come up, and, and then the J-class subs came in within 1974, and... Uh, it just went, but the, the submarines are further back towards Point Lonzo. They're not in that foul ground area. They're in a different area. Incredible. And the submarine that you actually found, what, what was a, the history of it? Where, where had it come from? Uh, in, during the war, or just, I guess, after the war, the, uh, the, the Royal Navy uh, gave us seven submarines, which supposedly we were going to use for training. And uh, on the way out, one got lost. Um, <laughs> Uh, one got uh, settled, uh, put up on the as a breakwater, I think, over the Sandringham area somewhere. Uh, the J3 is up on the Swan Spit, just up from Queensland, Swan Island. And uh, the others are out in Bass Strait. There's four of them out in Bass Strait. Amazing. Rex, have you got any more questions? Well, I was just going to... I've sort got 100, of, but we'll have to move yeah, on reasonably have to tie the, Jeff's no spring chicken. No, I don't suppose he <laughs> minds me saying, but... <laughs> To celebrate the uh, 50 years of the di- of diving the ship's graveyard, he him and um, a couple of the early divers, uh, Jim Anderson, went out and did a dive. So celebrating those 50 years, so amazing, amazing group of people. Is this recently, Jeff? Have you you've been out for a dive recently? No, Jim and I did that dive on the 6th of November in 2022. It would have been, I think. And uh, yeah, Jim did the dive with uh, some tech divers uh, that, that Mark Huckman had organised. And I did the uh, the dive at the deco stop and uh, waited for Jim to come up. Because we did the dive on a charter boat, I never had I never ever had a ticket for deep diving. And I'm not likely to get one now. <laughs> talk for another two hours i reckon with you we'll definitely catch up again for yeah sure. i think we need to do that for sure so thanks very much real honor to have you in jeff a very pleasure yeah love to do it love to do it again thanks so much we'll catch we catch up with you again jeff naylor um talking to us discovering the ship's graveyard um the original um submarine sunken off uh, point lonsdale 50 years ago absolutely incredible this is a podcast from triple r an independent media organization in melbourne australia Triple R is listener-supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber, hit up rrr.org.au to find out how. Well, let's go straight into it. Um, there's been quite a bit of hype um, in recent years about using seaweeds to do all sorts of wonderful things. We love seaweeds on this show. We love all sorts of algae, as regular listeners to Marinara will know. Um, but, but I, for one, have been a little bit scared sceptical, Bron, and wondering how much use seaweeds can be in um, in giving us carbon credits. And we know that they're going to be great at sucking carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere, but how much can we really use them to um, 
to do things like blue gums do on land and, you know, this whole is it a sense of blue washing that we're getting. Um, very pleased to say that we're joined by um, Professor of Seaweed from the University of Tasmania <laughs> and the Institute of Marine and Antarctic Studies, uh, Katrina Hurd. Uh, Katrina, I can hear you there down from Hobart. Good morning. Good morning. Yeah. Welcome to the program. Thank you. Thanks for inviting me. <laughs> oh, it's a complete pleasure. It's really great to have you on. I just want to, um, before we get into to talking about this, I just want to quote the um, the title of a paper that you sent me that you've just published with a whole oh. lot of authors from all around the world. Uh, and t- yeah. This is a commentary in the um, in the prestigious journal One Earth, and it's entitled "Deep Ocean Seaweed Dumping for Carbon Sequestration: Questionable, Risky, and Not the Best Use of Valuable Biomass." I think that encapsulates. A lot of what you're, you've been thinking about in the, in the recent past. Yes, that's right. So, yeah, that paper, there's been a lot of frustration amongst science, like expert scientists who work on seaweeds about this concept of growing seaweeds for carbon dioxide removal or carbon sequestration uh, because it's been driven very much by non expert companies. You know, the the science just isn't there to support some of the claims that are being made. And like this idea of growing seaweed, so seaweeds, as I'm sure everyone's aware, they naturally grow in the coastal systems. They form really important habitats, and they do, you know, they take out, they take up carbon dioxide, although they take it up from water, not the atmosphere. And, um, you know, they're super important in primary production. They have this idea that if we cover 9% of the global ocean, and that is the size of Australia plus Russia plus um, uh, the United States, Brazil, Canada, <laughs> then, um, you know, we're going to make an impact on atmospheric carbon dioxide. The idea being you grow them in the open ocean and sink them to the deep ocean. Easy. It sounds really easy, doesn't it? And one, one of the, Doesn't it uh, sound great? It sounds fantastic. If, if it was that easy, I'm sure we would have been doing it years ago. I'm, I'm quoting here from, <laughs> from a website that you've referenced in that recent paper. Um, and this, yeah. this is from a Shopify website where they're trying to do, you know, Blue washing. It says this Marty. Marty's a guy in um, in Oregon in the US. Marty's grand plan is to use um, the ocean as a lever to solve the climate crisis, yeah, and he believes yeah. one of the most powerful tools to do this is with kelp. Running Tide, yeah. which is his company, is growing and getting lots of investment. I'm sure Running Tide grows yeah. kelps to sequester carbon and sink it deep into the ocean. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> My immediate thought with that. Well, going back a little bit, to if we have so much seaweed out in the ocean, cover, you know, covering a surface area equivalent to what Russia, the US and all sorts of places, yeah. that's going to be using nutrients and those nutrients will be then robbed from Correct. phytoplankton, which are doing exactly. the important job of carbon fixing anyway. That's absolutely right. So the, the, they call it the ocean's biological pump, right? So, the, you know, the oceans cover two-thirds of the planet and the phytoplankton naturally, they actually do sequester carbon, although it's very different. Again, it's, they've, been, they've been quantifying that for approximately 100 years, so we have a reasonable but not complete estimate of what phytoplankton can do. And if you put seaweeds there, number one, you, you know, phytoplankton is an incredibly diverse community. You know, you've got thousands of species. So you're going to put, the idea is you've placed that with one species of seaweed, yeah. a kelp, so, number one, you've got a monoculture, yeah. and then you sink the kelp, which is going to cause all sorts of problems in the deep ocean, and you're going to rob the phytoplankton of the nutrients, as you said, and then, you know, you're going to lose a key way in which the oceans, 
um, actually do help with carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. And you, you mentioned the, the great diversity it's of phytoplankton. Yeah, it sure is. Uh, the, the diversity of phytoplankton on, on the... Uh, I, happen to like phytoplankton um, very much, as, as well as seaweeds and all other marine organisms, but there are phytoplankton, yeah. which we've talked about a couple of times on the show, which which have calcium yeah. carbonate shells around the outside. Oh, that's right, the coccolithophores, yeah. yes. So they fix you know, the carbon dioxide into those shells and they send that straight down to the seafloor where it is trapped yeah. for, you know, yeah. very, very long term. But if you've got a that's seaweed, right. a kelp, which you sink to the bottom, that's going to yeah. rot and release that carbon, presumably, that, pretty quickly. Pretty much, that's pretty much what people think will happen. So what the, the people who are advocating for sinking seaweeds reckon that it will get, that whilst it will just rot, it, because they're going to sink it so deep, that carbon dioxide isn't going to come back to the, uh, the surface for a long time because it's a very deep, you know, it's an ocean that you get these different layers of ocean currents. So they sort of think um, it's sequestered, but, but like as you said, the, the actual amount of seaweed in deep ocean sediments naturally is less than 0.05% of the total carbon stored by algae. It's absolutely tiny. Yeah. And even if you increase the seaweeds, it's not going to make much difference, actually. Yeah, that's right. But, but we can't forget that seaweeds are... Yeah, you know, really important parts of um, oh, of the ecosystems as well. I mean, all sorts. Let's talk about the benefits that seaweeds give us. Listen, yeah. I don't want uh, listeners to get the impression here that we're like, down on seaweeds. We're certainly oh, not. We're but not, what we're down on is exploring. I've spent my entire life studying seaweeds. We're so not down on seaweeds. They're super important. Um, you know, on almost every level. So, like in the coastal zones, and that's all the way from the poles right through to the tropics. They create habitat, right? So they. Six carbon, they, they primarily produce, they grow, they make food. That food is feeding the whole coastal food web, for example. So, you know, once seaweeds grow, most of their biomass, something like something like 86% of it, gets broke, like gets ripped off the rocks, broken down into small, tiny particles. And that is what feeds, you know, oysters, mussels, barnacles, and that whole thing. And then, so they're the base of the whole coastal food web, along with phytoplankton too, they're also there doing the same similar sort of job. But the thing that seaweeds do is create habitat and structure. And so, you know, if you go down to the beach, as we have done, and you pick up a seaweed, so particularly one that's got lots of little branches and stuff, you put it in a bag, shake it around a bit, you'll get a thousand invertebrates coming off that seaweed. It's remarkable. Yeah. So they just, you know, and those invertebrates make their little homes in it, yeah. They eat it. Eating your home isn't always the best plan, but, you know. <laughs> Hi, Katrina. It's Bron. I just had a question. Hi. Hi. Just had a question about the um, the origin of this idea of using kelp or algae um, for, yeah. for carbon sequestration. And carbon sequestration is something that's been, we've talked about a lot on this program, in a different yeah. form, not not using kelp as the mechanism to to take it down there. Yeah. Where did this come from and, and how advanced is this as a concept sort of globally? Where did it come from? It's come from a fundamental lack of understanding of how kelps function. So quite often people will call them kelp forests. And so then, and if you see some of the, you know, media stuff, you know, it says these, for, these underwater forests are going to suck carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere. So seaweeds don't function like terrestrial, terrestrial plants. Mm. They don't function like terrestrial forests. So terrestrial forests, they make wood, which is a way of sequestering carbon. They make soil, which is a, can be a very long-term carbon storage. 
seaweeds, they just get ripped off to the rocks and all their biomass and all that carbon ends up basically going back into the carbon cycle. So it gets eaten, it gets respired back into the atmosphere and so on. So it's this fundamental lack of understanding. And also the other lack of fundamental lack of understanding is that terrestrial plants take carbon dioxide out of the air directly. Seaweeds take carbon dioxide out of seawater. And they do that at the same rate that terrestrial plants take it out, out of the atmosphere. But the difference is that it can take up to a year for the carbon dioxide from the air to actually enter the seawater to replace the carbon dioxide that the seaweed took up. And that is a real problem. That's why we can't, that's the main reason we can't quantify carbon dioxide removal by seaweeds. It's amazing. That water, that water can go anywhere, right? You know, if you imagine a body of water that was around a seaweed patch, and a year later, where's it going to be? Yeah. Somewhere completely different. <laughs> exactly. You know? Exactly. And so, it might not ever re- draw down the CO two. Yeah. It might not happen. That's right. And, and, and all this, I, th- I think, as you mentioned just before, speaks to a fundamental lack of understanding about seaweed biology. And, and this Correct, brings yeah. to, to one of my other passions, um, which is, which is teaching phycology. Yeah. And and, yeah. and as far as I can see, like I know there's a couple of universities, like Melbourne University, for example, has stopped having, when I went yeah. through there um, many years ago, albeit, um, I, I, I could take three units in, in, in algal biology in third year. Now yeah. there are zero, even though they employ people to do research there. Deakin yeah. University, I know, has stopped teaching a dedicated uh, marine botany unit. You, I know, down yeah. in Tasmania are still doing it, um, thankfully. We are, yeah. But there are very few institutions in this country, which in these days where you think we'd be, you know, there's a lot of hype about seaweeds, as we've been mm. talking about phytoplankton, we know they're really important for carbon cycling. Um, there's mm-hmm. what I see as, as a really um, bad lack or a, a lack of teaching in, in, in algal biology at the moment. I think, yeah, I, I mean, it's a, it is a worrying trend. I, I thought so something a bit like this happened in the United Kingdom. There was a bunch of the classic, you know, the universities that had a strong tradition in teaching, just through retirements and this and that and the other, they stopped teaching those disciplines. But then they've been picked up, in the UK anyway, by different universities. So it's actually really thriving, just not where it was. Yeah. Um, whether or not that happens in Australia, I don't know. We, you'll be pleased to hear that at, at, um, at IMAS, Institute Marine and Antarctic Studies, we are trying to increase our seaweed, our algal offerings. So that, um, and they won't necessarily be specific um, you know, units. We'll keep our aquatic botany, but we'll be trying to... Uh, you know, bring it in at all levels. We already have it in at second year, we've tried, and we have it at first year plant biology. So it's there. We just need to. We're just going to try and make it more cohesive. So you know, let's hope that it doesn't get overlooked because it is fundamentally important. Yeah, let's hope that it, it is a, and si- I, I, a cycle. I fully, you know, and it is something we need to be training our marine students in. Yeah, there was a big swing about twenty years ago to molecular biology. Yeah. Um, and suddenly everyone wants to be a molecular biologist. And I think we're going to see a swing back to fundamental, some of the fundamentals that then you can use them with, you know, you've got two disciplines then hand in hand to make things stronger. Yeah. And, and particularly phycology, Katrina, we've noticed a real interest and, and almost exponentially really over the last few years of this yeah. sudden interest and, and hence why we're speaking with you today. Oh, look. Like I've spent, I have literally spent 30 years of my life studying seaweeds, and the last three years, four years, 
I have never seen such an incredible interest. And that's also partly because of, um, whilst we've talked about them as ecosystem engineers and this um, somewhat slightly dodgy idea of carbon sequestration, they are really important food and other things. So, you know, in Asia, it's massive seaweed industry. The seaweed that we use to wrap, um, you know, the, the sushi seaweed, nori, that one, that's one of the biggest food industries in the world, yeah. uh, coming out of, you know, China and Japan. It's your moment. Yeah, that's it's right. Your, it's your moment, Katrina. It's finally come. <laughs> I know. It's so funny. Um, yeah, and any, all of us who are studying seaweed just sort of sitting there going, ooh, what just happened? <laughs> We've just been like little nerds in our offices for so long. It's wonderful. Um, just before we wrap up, we've actually had a text message from someone who's come through. It's a slightly different uh uh, line of questioning to, to what we've been talking about, but um, the question, question for you, is there more that we can do with the huge amounts of seaweed that washes up on coastlines around the country and rots? And I, obviously it's not just around this country, it's really around the world. Yeah. No, that's right. So the, the, there's two points there. One point is the rotting bit is really good because that is actually what's feeding the coastal food web. So that, whilst it's irritating... Um, to be on a beach with a big pile of stinky seaweed, that gets broken down, feeds, you know, a whole bunch of all those invertebrates, oysters, mussels, etc., abalone, urchins. However, I think there is there are things we could do with that. Like, we, we wouldn't take all of it. And I know in New Zealand they're doing this already. Um, and you can use it. People, um, for example, in Tasmania, we have a big alginate industry. So that's beach cast bull kelp gets harvested, uh, taken off the beach, not harvested, and made into, um, it gets ground up and sent off to companies that make fertiliser or food, um, sorry, plant stimulants. So that's, you add it, if you add it to plants, there's a few good examples in, made in Australia. If you add it to plants, our plant, you know, pot plants and so forth, yeah. then they will grow better because it's a, called a biostimulant. It helps the plant um sort of resist stress better. Beautiful, beautiful so seaweed. There's lots of things like that, and fertiliser, but food, um, people are thinking about, some, uh, make, you can make it into stuff, right, like bricks yeah. and all sorts, right? So there's lots of potential. Indeed there is, Katrina. We're, we're going to jump in here. We're going to move on. Um, but um, thank yeah. you. For, it's been fantastic talking with you. Um, thank you so My much pleasure. for, um, yeah. I can talk about seaweeds all the time. So, you know, <laughs> we'll, we'll get you back on. Don't worry. But you'll, be, you'll be back on the show. Right. And any time you're in Melbourne, give us a yell so we can have you in the studio. Uh, Professor <laughs> Katrina Hurd from, um, from Hobart, thank you very much for talking you're with us this welcome. morning. You're very welcome. Thanks for having me. Yeah, no worries. Right. See ya. Bye-bye. Bye. Wonderful stuff. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. To find out more about Triple R or to explore many more shows, podcasts, articles, videos and interviews, head to the Triple R website, rrr.org.au. Without any further ado, good morning, Jeff Maynard. Good morning, Burton. Good morning, Beach. Great to have you back with us for another year. Of, I was uh, driving in, listening on the radio, and um, I noticed a certain amount of levity in your voice when you were talking about my upcoming segments. Yeah. About, and, and I want everyone to home to realise this is a very serious study. <laughs> we are counting down the top ten worst underwater movies, and it's very much um, quantifiable research. We can, we can get a paper out of this. I... I 
<laughs> Dr. Beach was ahead of the game already. PhD. I mean, yeah, no, I mean, this, this is, as I say, this, we're going to maintain the high academic standards that people have come to expect from Radio Marinara. Excellent. Because um, we're, we're, I suppose, categorising underwater movies by things like um, if there's a rubber suit on the fish man, you know, whether you can see the zipper or not, <laughs> you know. Um, the mad scientist has to have a, a lab coat and... Um, uh, um, and um, and the, young, like the young marine biologist has to wear a bikini. Well, see, Dr. Beach is ahead of the game already because this, the first one I'm doing, um, number number 10, as I count them down, is a 1968 movie made in Mexico and there are bikinis, Dr. Beach. <laughs> Kel and, Supreze. And... Um, and it's it's um, it's uh, a 1968 movie made in Mexico, and um, dead wrestlers, Mexican wrestlers, <laughs> are washing up on the beach in uh, Acapulco, and right. no one can figure out why these big sort of burly, beefy Mexican wrestlers are washing up on the beach. And so, and I have to give a warning: um, this movie was dubbed into English, so the um, the voices. Mm, maybe not always accurate. But anyway, let's have a listen. But they're, they're going to bring in a special agent to figure it out. So let's have a listen to track number one. You know, dears, they could all be related. At least it seems that way to the Federal Bureau of Intelligence. And so they have assigned a special agent to closely follow the traces of the murderer here in Acapulco. Understand? This is the special agent. Ah, the Batwoman. I explained everything to her, and she is eager to collaborate with us. That's splendid. Who's that woman? You don't know her? No. It's not easy to describe her with words. Now, it's, uh, her, she's the bat woman, and she's not easy to describe in words because she's sort of a bat woman rip-off, I suppose. She's got the little purple sort of thing that fits over her head with the little bat ears. She's got this cape. And a pair of boots, but that's about it because she's got this purple bikini, and she spends the whole movie running around in a little purple bikini with a bat cape and a thing, um, trying to find why the wrestlers are washing up. But anyway, um, because it, it, it's it's uh, it's qualified for our serious academic study, uh, it's got a mad scientist, and um, he's killing the wrestlers, and he's got an assistant called Igor, and he's got a white lab coat. So let's have a listen to him. Hurry up, Igor. You're about to witness the discovery of the century. From the depths of the ocean over 400 million years ago surfaced the beginnings of the human race. And it all began with the first vertebrate, the fish. Starting from that point, we will make the regression to the dawn of evolution. And we will create a new being with the likeness of our ancestors. A human-amphibious hybrid. <laughs> And he's got a great mad scientist maniacal <laughs> laugh, um, which is, again, you know, tick that little box. I've actually sort of got about seven pages of, of things for movies to qualify as bad underwaters, and, and maniacal laugh on mad scientists is one of them. <laughs> anyway, uh, what happens is the Batwoman um, scuba dives over to the mad scientist's boat, sneaks up, um, sneaks around in the bikini, sees what he's doing, he captures her. She sort of does some karate chops and escapes. Um, and she throws 
acid or something in his face as she's escaping. So the mad scientist now is really angry mad. Um, and he decides that he's going to get his fish man monster guy in a rubber suit to mate with the bat woman to make a female bat fish woman. Okay, so here's his next plan. You know, Igor, I wish to start the second phase of my project just as soon as possible. What will be the second phase, Master? The creation of a fish woman. And I don't need to tell you who we will use. I will release Pieces. He will bring her to me. And I will turn her into a fish woman. Hear my instructions, Pieces. I want you to bring that woman swimming outside to me. Understood? Catch her. She will be your mate. That's the destiny I have in store for her. Oh, my God. <laughs> That's fantastic. So, um... She keeps escaping because the fish guy swims around and can't catch her. And then um, the fish guy waits until she's sleeping. She gets into a sort of a little 60s negligee and goes to bed and pretends she's asleep. And the fish monster comes out of the water and uh, sneaks up and captures her. And then she escapes again. And and so the, the, the mad scientist is getting angrier and angrier. Um, but he's still got his plan to rule the world by creating fish woman. So let's have a listen to the last I want Beasties to be precisely the one to bring her to me. Uh-huh. And then my vengeance will be horrible. Horrible! And then we'll go to another country to find apt specimens and create dozens of fishmen. Even hundreds of fishmen. That'll finally give us control of the oceans of the whole world. We'll create hundreds. Hundreds! <laughs> so more maniacal laugh now i know what you're thinking brian where can people see <laughs> where, where, what's the name bikini batwoman bikini batwoman well you can actually see it what i did because of my you know diligence i sat up last night and i edited some highlights and put them up on my youtube channel so if you want to go and see uh, number 10, worst underwater movie. I'll be doing it all year, actually. Uh, it's just Google Jeff Maynard, Jeff with a J, and I think my thing is Adventure Historian. So Jeff Maynard, Adventure Historian, go to my YouTube channel and you'll see number 10, worst underwater movie. And uh, each each time I come on, I'll sort of put little highlights up. But there's the best place to see. We'll put a link to that on our Facebook page. What scares me the most about that, Jeff, is that this is the 10th worst. We've got nine more of these to go, and presumably (laughs) each one gets worse, right? Well, they they get worse, but in, in, you sort of love them. They get better too. I know. You know? I mean, you've, you've set the bar just, pretty low. It, it's, I'm, I'm sort of feel a bit bad saying they're the worst because you kind of just love the old cars and the big rubber claws and things. So and, 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 and the dubbing that must be even better to see that. Well, the, the dubbing was that that was beautiful yeah. on that one. Thank yeah. you so much. Looking forward to the next one. I'm looking to. Thanks also to Katrina Hurd, who joined us today, and to Jeff Naylor. Uh, Thank you, Dr Beach. Thank you, Rachel, very much for panelling. Thanks to uh, David for having this show up as a podcast. We'll catch you next week for more Marinara. Bye for now. Hi, this is Bron Burton. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Radio Marinara, a weekly radio show exploring all things wet and salty, broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Radio Marinara's Facebook page.